0: The History Channel, original podcast. History This Week, March 9th, 1901. I'm Sally Helm. The front page of this newspaper features a photo of a middle-aged woman in a black dress and a bonnet. In one hand, she's carrying a Bible. In the other, a hatchet. The caption identifies this woman as Mrs. Carrie Nation quote, leader of the greater smashing reform crusade. The newspaper is called The Smasher's Mail and today marks its first edition. Carrie Nation put it together from the Shawnee County Jail in Topeka, Kansas, where she was arrested after smashing up some saloons with a hatchet as part of her fight for temperance. She believes alcohol is a menace, a danger to the nation. not everyone agrees with her. The first section of her newspaper is titled Letters from Hell. These are from people who do not want Carrie to smash up their saloons. Here's one from Duluth, Minnesota. Quote, I see you have finally got your position in jail among the rest of the thieves and criminals. You old dirty thing, the jail is too good for an old bladder like you. Another, from a saloon keeper in Dallas, is addressed to that blockhead, Carrie Nation. Another, confusingly, calls her a lobster, which was an insult at the time. But the Smasher's Mail also includes letters from Nation's supporters. A woman from Minnesota calls her dear sister and expresses a, quote, deep interest in your work of annihilating the unlawful saloons. An admirer from Coffeyville, Kansas, says they know that Nation may have lost her usual weapons after her recent arrest. And so, quote, I send you by express today one hatchet, which I hope you will have occasion to use in your glorious work. Today, how did Carrie Nation become a notorious crusader against what she called hell broth? And while some today look back on her methods as pretty out there, Was her strategy to smash, smash, smash really all that extreme?
1: Hold up.
0: These days, Fran Grace is a professor of religious studies at the University of Redlands in California. She's also the founding director of the school's meditation program. But 20 years ago, she published a definitive biography of Carrie Nation, whose mission was to smash, smash, smash. We asked her how that career transition played out.
2: How did I go from years of my life going to Topeka, Kansas, to research a hatchet-yielding unpopular female figure to now I teach meditation and I just wrote a book called The Power of Love.
0: Well... Well, Grace says, the two parts of her life are more connected than you'd think. She first heard of Carrie Nation when she was a grad student at the Princeton Theological Seminary. A book on the shelves of the library almost seemed to call her name. She opened it and found Nation's Autobiography. Autobiography.
2: It turned out that she was in a religious denomination that I myself was in that didn't allow women to speak. Women weren't allowed to say anything in the worship service, in my experience. So I was drawn to her, how did she do that? How did she become such a public woman who spoke in public, who did her hatchet crusade in public? So it piqued my interest, a search to find my own voice, you might say.
0: Carrie Nation was born Caroline Moore. She started her life in rural Kentucky, about 15 years before the outbreak of the Civil War. Her family was Christian, part of something called the Restoration Movement.
2: They were very religious, prayers and Bible readings every day, and yet another element of Carrie's spirituality — because she was a very feeling person, obviously. She was greatly passionate, huh? She had the movement of the spirit, and liked to sing and move with that great feeling. And as an adult... She left her father's religious heritage to go in search of things that spoke to her own spirit.
0: Which included marrying a man that her parents did not approve of. A doctor and Civil War veteran named Charles Gloyd.
2: She fell in love. We're we're often drawn to our opposites. And unlike her father and unlike the the culture that she was raised in, he invited her to think for herself and to express herself. He, He respected, I think, something of her own freedom.
0: But there is also a looming problem for this young couple. Gloyd is a serious drinker.
2: At first, Nation doesn't really recognize this. When you fall in love, there are certain things that you you don't really notice.
0: But five days after they get married, Gloyd comes home and passes out on the bed. Nation isn't sure what's going on. She writes in her autobiography that she leans over him and, quote, The fumes of liquor came in my face. I was terror-stricken. After that, she says... Not one happy moment did I see. Eventually.
2: He couldn't sustain his, his work, and the saloons became really the place that he ended up rather than at home with her. So,
0: soon after giving birth to their son, Nation leaves him. And not long after that.
2: Absolutely heartbreaking. He basically drinks himself to death.
0: Charles Gloyd dies from his alcoholism. Carrie is now a widow. During this time, she finds solace in her religion.
2: The church is a place where women could do a lot of different aspects of service and express themselves in limited ways, but at least some kind of way where she's connecting with people in community and sharing the burdens of life with them. And that's probably where she came across the temperance conversations, as in the churches.
0: Temperance. The temperance movement had started up in the early 1800s, and it sought to eliminate, or at least to limit, the consumption of alcohol in the United States. Temperance advocates argued that drinking led to increased poverty and domestic violence. Alcoholism really was rampant during this time. People drank a lot. Things had reached a peak in the 1830s when American adults drank, on average, almost two bottles of 80-proof alcohol per week. That is almost two bottles of whiskey by yourself in one week, every week. So during this time, alcohol really was a big political issue.
2: You know, nowadays it's really not. It would be... Uh Maybe smoking is the parallel that's become so much talked about, researched, discussed, the science of it, the terrible impact of it, etc.
0: And the temperance movement from the start was powered by women. In fact, it was one of the first significant opportunities women had to politically organize. Temperance was seen as a moral issue, one that respectable women could speak up about, and women also suffered some of the worst consequences of alcohol abuse in the form of domestic violence. So the temperance movement became a chance for them to lead.
2: It was an empowering space for women to articulate arguments that had an influence on legislation. Even though they couldn't vote, <laughs> they, could, they could make an idea about it that then was influential.
0: Many women get involved in temperance through the church, including Carrie. And it's around this same time that she meets a new man, David Nation. She marries him, though it doesn't seem to be for love.
2: When I read their letters, it was basically, he was writing, you know, I need a mother for my children. And she was writing, well, I, I need financial support.
0: David Nation was 19 years older than Carrie. He had children and a career.
2: He was a minister, and she didn't think a very good one. In fact,
0: Carrie was pretty sure that she'd be a better minister than her husband. But that wasn't something many women did at the time. Most churches wouldn't allow them to preach.
2: So Nation got creative. Riding in carriages down dirt back roads in Oklahoma territory to preach at churches that were so rural and out of the way that no man was interested in going. So they were okay to have a woman preacher.
0: And one thing Nation preached was temperance. She spoke about it on the pulpit and taught about it in Sunday school. And meanwhile, beyond the pulpit, her religious experience is deepening. After her marriage to David Nation, the family is living in Texas. Nation is operating a hotel, and she starts to have these visions.
2: Yes, visions. That is, you know, there's some things that we know through our intellect. We read a book and we we track ideas, but a vision is another kind of knowledge experience where we come to know something is true, even though, you know, we can't literally articulate it in the traditional way.
0: In her autobiography, Nation describes one vision that comes to her at three o'clock in the morning after she's gotten up to help a sick guest in the hotel. She sees a strange light behind her in the stairwell, and she feels the presence of God. The next night, again around three o'clock in the morning, a fire starts up in town. It begins sweeping toward the hotel. The building, she says, is a tinderbox. She's constantly worried that it'll go up in flames. But that night, instead of evacuating with the other guests or trying to get her belongings safely onto the street, Nation goes upstairs to pray. She writes, I prayed until I seemed to get an answer of security. Then she goes outside. And lo and behold, when the fire dies down, the hotel is spared. Over the years, Nation continues to have visions, and they give her a sense of purpose. They drive her to continue her work with the poor and to continue her commitment to temperance.
2: Maybe it's a bit of a midlife crisis. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's like the spiritual factor, the economic factor, the psychological factor of being a midlife woman. Still feeling like there's something left for me to do, you know, something important. And it's not being married to old David, <laughs> By the way, religious visions at
0: this time weren't all that uncommon. President William McKinley apparently had a vision that the United States was destined to go to war with Spain — and go to war with Spain they did. But Grace told us, for women, you could say that certain visions were more acceptable than others.
2: If, if a woman has a vision that says, yes, you know, you're to stay home and serve the family for the rest of your life, they would say, yes, we agree with that vision. But if a woman has a vision like she did that says, you know, you're to leave your husband and go crusade and save the nation from alcohol abuse.
0: That type of vision was different. But that is the vision that Carrie Nation has one night in 1900. She's 54 years old, now living in Kansas. Kansas had actually passed a prohibition law in 1880, but it went largely unenforced. But Nation, along with her fellow members of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU, were writing to legislators, organizing marches, singing protest songs in front of the saloons.
2: They referred to it as the method of moral suasion. You know, morally trying to persuade people, you know, this is not really good. This is not what is in the Bible, asking people to take abstinence pledges, temperance pledges, wear a little white ribbon. (laughs) And that probably was effective up to a certain point. But it was also a bit laughed at by the people who ran the saloons illegally, blatantly. Nation is getting frustrated.
0: Remember, she lost her first love to alcoholism, so she feels the cause very personally. And she sees other women suffering from their partner's
2: drinking, too. Women were the ones that were really, truly helpless. If you lost your husband to alcoholism, you know, financially, you were destitute. Socially, you were ruined. But you couldn't vote. You could What, what could you do?
0: One night in June of 1900, Carrie Nation throws herself down at the foot of her bed to say to God, use me to help fight for temperance in Kansas, please. And the next morning, she wakes up to a murmuring voice. It says, go to Kiowa. Then, as she tells it in her autobiography, quote, my hands were lifted and thrown down. And then she hears another phrase, spoken clearly and emphatically this time. I'll stand by you. For Nation, the meaning is very clear. She is supposed to use her hands to take down the
2: saloons in Kiowa, Kansas. The way she saw it? God chose Carrie to go into the saloons that were operated illegally and smash them. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: After Carrie Nation has her vision, she goes out into her yard and begins gathering up pieces of brick to take with her to Kiowa for the smashing. She cooks a day's worth of food for her husband, loads her bricks up into her buggy, and rides out of town. The next morning bright and early, she walks over to a saloon in Kiowa. She's carrying the bricks and some empty bottles wrapped in newspaper so they look like harmless packages. She marches up to the bar and tells the proprietor, Mr. Dobson, get out of the way. I don't want to strike you, but I'm going to break up this den of vice. And then she starts smashing.
2: I'm sure it was quite a shock suddenly to have this middle-aged woman come in there smashing everything.
0: She breaks a mirror behind the bar, smashes some liquor bottles. She later writes, Mr. Dobson and his companion jumped into a corner, seemed very much terrified. And then she leaves and goes on to another bar and then another. At the third one, the brick she throws at the mirror doesn't manage to break it. So she looks around for something else to use. There's a billiard ball sitting on the pool table. She says, thank God, picks it up, throws it at the mirror, and smashes it. Pretty soon, perhaps unsurprisingly, she's arrested. And a little while after she gets out of jail, she heads for one of the biggest cities in Kansas, Wichita. There, she smashes up a bar at a hotel, reportedly does thousands of dollars worth of damage. And she's arrested again. After that, she heads to Topeka. Here, she's joined by a crew of fellow Temperance fighters. And after her smashing, she's jailed. That's when she puts together her first issue of The Smasher's Mail. It is a passionate document that tells people what she's doing and why. She writes, it is the command of God that I smash joints. I have no malice against the men who are engaged in the business. The strokes of my hatchet are prompted by love. After Topeka, Carrie's movement is gaining momentum. Newspapers are writing about her, highlighting that new weapon of choice, the hatchet.
2: The reaction was polarized, I guess you would say. Some people immediately became nationized. That's what it was called when you joined Carrie Nation's crusade. Even saloon
0: owners weren't entirely angry at her.
2: On the one hand, they were horrified. On the other, you know, it was good for their business. It got a lot of attention. And, you know, of course, then all the beer was overflowing because she, she would hatchet the beer kegs and I'll just imagine spewing beer everywhere and people coming in and enjoying the party.
0: And later, people might come in for souvenirs. Like, here's a piece of the mirror that Carrie Nation smashed. Nation herself even began selling little mini-hatchets to help fund her legal bills. She was jailed over 30 times. She also did face backlash from the public, and sometimes physical harm.
2: There were threats on her life. There's one famous painting of her with a big, huge black eye. Somebody hauled off and punched her. And yes, there was violence done against her. Mm -hmm.
0: But not by her. She never hurt people in her smashing, just mirrors and kegs and bottles of whiskey. In fact, Grace emphasizes, Nation really had a soft, empathetic side.
2: I mean, she would even buy donkeys uh, that were overworked so that she could free them and put them in fields to retire. And Nation felt that her smashing was actually ultimately on
0: behalf of the saloon owners themselves because she believed that alcohol was a dangerous, corrupting force. As she got more and more famous, she'd sometimes donate the proceeds from her speeches to saloon owners who agreed to shut down their shops and start afresh. Carrie Nation didn't keep smashing forever. Eventually, she took her message on the lecture circuit, speaking at churches and state legislatures and major universities. She also went on the vaudeville circuit and went to New York to act in a famous pro-temperance play— She even put on a burlesque act called Hell is No Joke. She was introduced by, quote, a chorus of 25 maidens in much abbreviated skirts.
2: She wasn't afraid to go anywhere. You know, fear was not a prison she lived in. And people's disapproval was not something that she was afraid of. So she was a light bearer, I guess you would say, of a certain freedom of women to speak and to move and to express in places and in ways that were not traditional at all.
0: Nation died in 1911, nine years before the 18th Amendment made Prohibition the law of the land, and 22 years before that amendment was repealed in 1933. And in the years since then, Nation has come to be looked at as something of a historical oddity, which is at least partly because she
2: had a sense of humor herself. I mean, honestly, I I laughed so much when I was writing, when I read some of her speeches. I mean, really, beak-nosed, swill-faced, donkey, bedmates of Satan. I mean, that's a lot of words to string together, and it's pretty darn funny. But
0: Grace also emphasizes, Nation's activism was sincere. She had suffered a heartbreaking loss as a young person, and she was fighting for a cause that a lot of people believed in. She just so happened to be fighting with a hatchet. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Julie Magruder, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.
1: Hold up.